Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast to Sober Chicks. Welcome. I'm very excited about today's podcast because I have such a beloved friend, one of the reasons I love Tennessee so much. And right before we started recording, we were talking about pee and poop. So you know you have a true friend when you can discuss all things recovery, um, body processes. But the reason I'm talking to her today on this podcast is because she recently spoke at a church about being a survivor and what she wrote and what she spoke I thought was so extraordinary and could help so many people because it talks about the range of emotions of a survivor. She'll talk about her story and we'll go through that a little bit together because in true teacher fashion or professor fashion she wrote something and then had points at the end of what she wrote. So there were six, five. There were five points that she wanted to hammer home about the experience of a survivor, the range of emotions that a survivor can experience, and how if you are struggling with any of these things, A, you are not alone, but B, there are very helpful healing ways that you can cope with your experience. So hello, Amanda. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm so good. I love talking to you and hearing that little southern twang in your voice always makes me feel better. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I'm not very aware of it, but I know I have a little bit of one. Uh, I have some friends who have a pretty strong accent, so and they ask me if I'm from New England or something. <laughs> oh, yours is so soft and lovely. I have met some of those people with those strong accents, and I was just like, my mouth was open. I was so excited. I'm like, oh, these are my people. I need to live here. I always tend to get an accent when I'm talking to you, which is like, uh, if it was permanent, I would love it, but I have to work at it. I'll start saying, sorry, sorry, can't do that, you know, or, or try to try my Canadian accent, but I'm not very good at it. So, yeah. Well. Um, yeah. <laughs> It'll be very obviously put on. All right. So, so um, you wanted me to talk about my survivor experience. I would love for you to talk about your survivor experience. Um, yeah. And we'll chat like okay. intermittently about stuff in terms of things sure. that you say or maybe something that needs clarity. But you are so good at this that I probably won't need to say much. Okay. Well, don't don't hesitate to interrupt me at any time and, you know, make this more of a conversation because obviously – when I was talking about it um, in front of the church, it was it was a, a long monologue, so I don't necessarily, I, and I know how important conversation is and back and forth is for just this podcast and, and in general, just so that we can understand each other when we're talking about these things. So um, I uh, survived a school shooting, and I, I won't go into great details, but uh, two people were murdered in the school shooting, and it happened um, in 1992, so this was before... I think the rash of school shootings, this was before um, Columbine happened, and uh, we really knew what to do. Um, in, in a way, it's it's sad, but there's enough practice at it now that being a survivor of a school shooting is something that um, people have more practice at. Uh, they also kind of know how to handle the, the institution and the situation and the students and the people who are affected. But when it, we went through it, we were just, uh, we were just uh, 
completely at loss, at a loss of what to do with ourselves and with each other um, at, at the school. And, and we did try to help. I mean, it's not like nobody did anything, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of wish to return to normalcy and, um, you know, and, and what we were unable to articulate at the time is when something like that happens, you don't trust normal anymore. And um, so everything around you can seem really normal, but you don't, you feel detached from it or you, you don't, you don't trust it. And, um, and there's just a lot of feelings and things that you go through. And one of the big things that I went through that a lot of my classmates went through as well, um, and probably professors and administrators as well was survivor's guilt. And, um, I've been working, um, as a volunteer for a nonprofit using my survivor story to, um, and to inspire and, and try to, um, promote for change. And, um, in that process, I've learned a lot about myself and the process and the journey of surviving. And um, my friend who is a minister uh, asked me to come and speak to her church about that. So that's sort of the, the background that leads to um, what I was talking about today, uh, what, what I want to talk about today. Um, so the so I'm just going to go right into the main points because you don't have to hear the, the, all the personal details, but I will say that necessarily practiced right away <laughs> because we're human and we don't always do this stuff right. Um, and I, I learned it through time and I also kind of put a caveat at the beginning. A lot of people use um, victimhood or um, they put themselves in a, in a victim position as a way of asserting power over somebody else to do whatever they want. And I'm assuming that that's not happening at any point in this narrative. And I think that's really important to clarify because, um, you know, sometimes people will try to try to use um, these things to manipulate the situation. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about existing in a space of, compassion and care and being of service to one another, which is what we do in AA. You know, we are of service to one another. We focus on that service and that's a big part of our, our healing process. So um, that's really the context in which I am talking about these things. So okay. just sort of to preface that. Yeah. I'm sure you've met some people who have used victimhood uh, as a power play. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, that's, that's something that we uh, that that we can do, um, and you know I think we're all guilty of that to some extent. I'm having a bad day; don't bother me, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I or in your words, I'm feeling stabby. Is, <laughs> yes, I'm feeling stabby. Yeah, <laughs> don't bother me. <laughs> That's just a warning. <laughs> I love it. We deal with victims a lot in recovery, and as my sponsor says, yeah. victims don't get better. So I like that you make the distinction yeah. between a victim, which is someone that is so enmeshed in their own experience that they want other people to be welcomed into the unhealthy enmeshment, as opposed to a survivor who comes from a point of strength and recovery. Yes. And, and I, I think that everyone's allowed to be a victim for a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. But if you use it to manipulate or to, to, to exert power over... Um, over others, 
in a in a non-contextual situation, then you know you've got to wonder if you're just caught in a pattern that's self-destructive. Not to mention just destructive in general. So that's one of the yeah. I, I think that's a really good you know discussion to have. But I'm sort of focusing on more like what do you do when you're sitting with your the fact that you survived a situation and um, and you're looking around you and you're whole and you're um, sort of unscathed. And this one's really relevant to us because we've just lived through these two big tornadoes and 28 people died um, mm-hmm. in our community. Mm-hmm. And um, we also have a COVID uh, uh, crisis happening. And so there's just a lot of things where people are feeling uh, fortunate and lucky and guilty about it. So a lot of this is about survivor skills. Mm-hmm. So the, the first point that I made, yeah, so the first point I made to them is um, in a battlefield, you are not in charge. And life is a battlefield. As we walk through this, some of us fall, you know, some of us are tortured. And then there's some people's paths who are just like strewn with roses and they just seem to walk through everything unscathed. And, and you really don't know why. And um, the good thing about that I learned is that you don't have to know why. Um, there's no, that you don't necessarily need a reason. Um, I'm not in charge of who's hit and who is not. Um, so, you know, people will feel and act and move forward and backward on the battlefield. Um, they might observe, um, but there's no, you don't need to find a rhyme or reason to why things happen to some and don't happen to others. And I'm glad that, battle, that you know, in, on a battlefield um, that the, bullets are not equally distributed because if that were the case then how would some of us carry the wounded to safety Mm, so and also for at least for me when I'm in the battlefield I don't know it because I'm in pure survival so it's only after that I realize what I've gone through and then feeling bad that I didn't react the way maybe I should have reacted. And it's like you went through something like this the other day where you were feeling bad how you reacted to that situation um, with your daughter. And I was like, how else were you supposed to react? (laughs) Like you were in the moment. (laughs) You felt like your danger and your child's danger was in safety and you responded. Like we can't pick how we react in situations where we're activated that way. No, you can't, and, and and it is it is crazy. You know, it, it can sometimes elicit some crazy thinking, but yes, you have to realize that. You know, at the time, you're doing the best you possibly can. It does not mean you're doing perfectly. It means you're doing the best you can at that moment to try to understand the situation and get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I also think you know, in the in the rooms, we have people who are you know, very recovered, um, who, you know, have many, many, many years. We have some people that are, are relatively young in recovery, but, you know, have a great program and are, are got their feet planted. And then we have people who just showed up and who were drunk yesterday. And in a sense, it, it, it is kind of a battlefield and we all sort of link arms and carry each other, mm-hmm. um, safety. And, and I think that that's the important thing is to have that variety in the rooms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think of ourselves as being um, injured by our addiction and our um, our, our journey, of rec- you know, and going through a journey of recovery, you know, we really do 
support each other through it, and it's it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we don't resent each other's good health either. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we say you have a great program. What did you do? <laughs> How can I get to where you are? You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So that that was one of the things that um, I thought about. That you know, I'm not in charge of of how I survived this event, but I, you know, I can, I can move forward and I can try to help and carry the wounded to safety. And I'm glad that I can do that. That's good. Um, okay. So the second thing I I wanted to, I told them is that feelings are just what they are. They're neither good nor are they bad. Mm -hmm. And, And you guys talk about this a lot in your podcast. You say, you know, feelings are feelings only. Um, they sit with you and what, feelings are and why we should value them is I think that they are um if you think about people who don't have feelings it's it's a nightmare um it's what connects you to what's happening Mm -hmm. it's your signal uh Mm -hmm. that you're connected to the outside world so it's that part of you that loves yourself that is grateful you're safe um it's it's fatal to ignore them but it's also a bad idea like we talked about to let them drive the boat you know Mm -hmm. um we don't want them to drive your ship totally so so i think sometimes you have a feeling like thank god it wasn't me and then you feel guilty about that Mm. you feel guilty for having that feeling and um i think uh guilt is is a pretty crappy feeling it's not a very productive feeling sometimes um but you know, I, I just think that it's important to just sort of say it's okay to think that. It's okay to have that feeling, you know, um, and to just sort of let it sit there and say, well, there you are, and uh, let it go by and let it let it pass, and that's okay. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I spent a lot of time fighting myself and fighting feelings, and I, I don't think that that is a very productive way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like fighting with a cloud, you know, it just doesn't really get you anywhere. <laughs> um okay the the last the the third thing is kind of a long uh point to make um but it pretty much it it's called dump out support in and it's um it's about the concept of, of ring theory um and it was um written about by a psychologist susan silk and a co-author barry goldman uh, who wrote about this concept of the ring theory in a 2013 New York Times article. Now, I don't know if they were the ones who uh, sort of came up with this idea or if they were just uh, expressing this idea. Um, I haven't looked you know, down to the original author of this whole notion, but the idea is that when there's a crisis or a trauma or anything like that, there's generally... Um, you can think of it as, as being a pebble dripping, in, uh, dropping into a pond, and there's rings that go out from that drop. And in each longer ring, larger ring, is a person who is next closest to the crisis. So we have somebody who perhaps, or a community, or um, for example, my school, who is at the center of that ring. Mm-hmm. And then you move outward, and then there's you know, family members and community members and, you know, everybody is affected by that trauma Mm -hmm. and is, you know, in a sense, a victim of that situation. And we usually recognize this sort of intuitively. Um, 
that there's a hierarchy of crisis or, or trauma, um, and it's not something that it legitimizes your own feelings of grief, sorrow, guilt, or stress. Um, all of those things are legit at any place in the in that uh, circle, but it helps you direct your feelings appropriately and with sort of due deference to the people around you so that you can be of comfort and service to them. And I think that's really important because one of the things that I was really at loss about um, after it happened was how to how to um, show comfort and sympathy and express my own grief. Um, I felt a little bit like I was in this phase of um, of this hierarchy, and having a little direction would have helped me a lot. Um, you know, because what ends up happening is people feel uncomfortable with people in a crisis, mm-hmm. and um, and then they feel guilty for not being of more comfort later on, and that's certainly something that I, I grappled with. So the idea is that the person in the center ring is in crisis and navigating their own healing. Uh, they have to be in charge of their own narrative and their own path, and, and you cannot be. Um, they may choose to take or offer any comfort at any time they want as they get their footing under them. And again, this is somebody who is in crisis. This mm-hmm. is not somebody who's throwing a power play. This is somebody who's in the middle of their grief. When you're talking to a person in a ring that's smaller than yours or someone closer to the center or in the middle of the crisis, generally you need to get outside of yourself and be of service. Uh, Listening is more helpful than talking. Um, Ask yourself when you're you're talking to them if you're serving yourself or your ego or serving them. You know, uh, I think a lot of people have this urge to fix. You want to give advice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. You know, you you want to you want to alleviate somebody's suffering, and so your idea is there there is to fix it. I want to fix it, um, but they often don't need advice. They just need time. They need comfort and support and time. And I'm sorry, or this must be really hard. Or can mm-hmm. I bring you some tea? Is a lot more helpful than oh, you know, this same thing happened to me. Or here's what I would do if I were you. Or you're depressing me. Um, or look on the bright side. Or look on the bright side. Or this is God's will. Ugh. Yes. <laughs> that one really drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, I think what that does is it robs the person of stuff, the suffering of the room and space. They need to feel better. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it is God's will. We don't, you know, we sort of say that everything that happens is God's will. You don't need to tell them that. Mm-hmm. That's something they need to get to on their own, you know? <clears throat> yep. And I think, you know, in a sense, it, once healing is achieved and the feet are under the victim of a crisis, then perhaps the victim can be of comfort to everyone in that ripple because that person has now processed the pain and knows where they stand. And I think of that as where you transition to being a survivor. And the only only the person in the crisis can identify themselves as a survivor. That's not up to anyone else in the trauma ring, mm-hmm. especially one who's on the outside. That's the other thing. you got to give people time to get there. So that's kind of a long way of talking about, um, you know, ring theory. But um, one of the things that isn't mentioned is what you can do with people in your own ring. Um, if you, you know, you can, uh, I found that the comfort of other survivors and other people who were present at the time 
of the shooting were my best tools to both provide and receive comfort at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful experience. And I think that's a lot of what we get in the rooms. Yes. There's so much overlap about what you're talking. And that's a question I'm going to ask you later. But between about like the process and what you're talking about and how language matters and how to do your own work before you're there for someone else, like it's awesome. Yes. Yes. And I think in a way, I mean, having this disease is is a trauma. It's in so many ways. It may not be a single event. It may be a whole series of events that have caused trauma, but just sitting down, sitting down and realizing you have it and that you're, you're out of control in your own life. That that's a, that's a heavy blow. That's a heavy blow. Yeah. You can't tip. Um, I don't know anyone that suffers from addiction that isn't because it's, um, it's, that is (laughs) that isn't suffering some kind of trauma it's like what's his name the guy who wrote um what's that he's canadian and he has written a lot about addiction and now i can't remember his name but it'll probably come up later but when he deals with people that have addiction and he deals with like like deep downtown vancouver we're talking people on the streets can't stop using he says he doesn't say why the addiction he says why the trauma and that's how he attacks the addiction issues Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and I think that's a, a big, um, that's a big cause. I mean, I don't know if you, we can talk about causes and conditions. We don't, I don't necessarily know, but I know that almost everyone in the rooms that I've met has had some deep trauma that's, you know, even aside from their addiction. Um, I, I don't know if it's universal or not. That's not for me to know, but I can say that most of us do. Like, most of us have something that happened in our lives that... Um, shook us to our core and made us vulnerable and frightened uh and you know a lot of us are self-medicating for that mm-hmm. um and that's part of how we get that's how we get to the rooms um but the great thing is that once you're in the rooms it, there are tools there to help you not only deal with your addiction but deal with that trauma in a, a more productive way mm-hmm. and i think that's um that's been a wonderful um a wonderful side effect, I guess, of going through recovery um, for me is mm-hmm. I get to recover from not just the alcoholism, but um, other things, and and including this this one trauma that occurred, among others. But yeah, it's been really great for that. Um, and you know, um, and it, it helps you with traumas that are happening right right then and there too. Like you know, I have life sometimes just you know life on life's terms bad stuff happens and Mm -hmm. um it gives you tools to deal with that as well so um yeah i I found the ring theory really helpful to just sort of um take a lot of uh concepts that are very intuitive to us um and and sort of make it uh, more concrete in my mind i really like that and the other thing i really liked about it is it explained some of the irritation i felt with people um when i was in the middle of grieving where they would be like well let me tell you about what happened to me or Mm -hmm. um you know why was I so irritated with them they were trying to help you know and I felt bad about being irritated with them I didn't realize that in a sense that they were taking away the room that I needed Mm. to to be you know to be in my pain um and that's why I was irritated like I, I I couldn't I couldn't articulate that and um and once once I read that I was like oh that's why I was so like 
cranky about that and how I got over it. You know, because when when you're not in the middle of that, when you have your feet under you, you can listen to as many stories as you need to. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the thick of it, it's not time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I sort of made the story like you can imagine, like if your um, if your uh, mom has cancer and you're going to visit her in the hospital and she's going through chemo and she's sitting on the bed, you don't go and like burst into her room and say, "Gosh, the traffic to get to the hospital is just terrible today." Yeah, the nurse over here was rude to me. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, you know, but it doesn't mean that you know your irritability at the at the traffic is a bad thing. It's just you don't express it to people who are in the midst of a crisis. You know. Yeah, it's like that saying: feelings are not commands. And especially when you're dealing with someone that's going through something, you really have to check your own shit and your own energy before you walk into the space. I remember reading that by. that yeah. neuro, I think she was a neuroscientist. You probably know who I'm talking about, Jill Bolte Taylor. And she survived oh, okay. her own stroke. And she talked about while she was unable to communicate and lying in a hospital bed, she could feel the energy of people coming in. And she wished she could say stuff like, I don't want to feel your anxiety about the traffic. I don't want to feel your un, um, your over emotional state of she's gonna die I don't know what to do so it always stuck with me that when you're dealing with anyone that's in any kind of emotional crisis or healing you check your shit at the door you show up for them and this mind you like you said it has with the rings if I'm in the center ring I may not have any idea about how I'm feeling or how I'm coming off but if I'm outside of that ring I have to know that I have to show up and support someone and let them have their experience. And one of my favorite terms ever in life, hold space for someone. Like just come in as a vessel, be ready to look them in the eyes and listen to them and hold their hand. Like just hold the space and say, this this time is yours. Tell me what you got. Yeah, and just to be still with them and give them all the room that they need to express whatever it is that they want, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's joy, sorrow, guilt, anger, whatever it is that they need. Um, I think that's one of the most generous gifts that you can give anyone Mm -hmm. um, in any situation, but particularly in crisis and in grief, it's just a hold space. And I think that that's what it is. It's like comfort in, dump out, but there's just hold space in, acknowledge your feelings outwards. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's really what all that means. And yes, absolutely. I think that's, that's what it's all about is it. And, you know, I I think we all understand this on an intuitive level, but the interesting thing is, you know, after the shooting, immediately after the shooting, I was in crisis myself, and I didn't know that that's what I intuitively wanted to do. So when I ran into um, one of the uh, victim's uh, girlfriend and wanted to comfort her, but I didn't, I felt awkward and weird about it and, you know, all these sorts of things, and, um, you know, you want to give her space and you don't want to remind her, you know, all these things, all these Mm. jumbled up emotions were in my head at the time. I wanted to, I wanted to do something for her. If I had had this structure in my head, I think I would have had an easier time making decisions. Like, am I in a space where I can hold space for her? Or do I need to just, you know, deal with my own shit first? Or, you know, how do I, or, or, if I had just said, okay, I'm just going to empty my ego and she can stay or do whatever she wants. I'm just going to be here for her. And if, if I had had that ability, but you know, I was 18. <laughs> I didn't know my, my head from a hole in the ground. So, um, 
Yeah. Oh, we can curse on this. I know my ass from the holy ground. We can curse on this show. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know what the fuck to do. You know, because like, mm-hmm. I was a kid. So, uh, but these are all things that I recognize now, and it really helped me a lot when I'm trying to be of comfort to my friends and you know hold space for them. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So I guess that's what that's all about. So um, the fourth thing I mentioned was just to do things that help with recovery. So this is all about self-care. Um, and, you know, take some time to acquaint yourself with your free your feelings. Go ahead and, and go through the battlefield in your head. Like, question why you escaped death or suffering while others lost their lives. Because it's going to happen mm-hmm. eventually. You know, if you fight that... Um, I think that just extends, you know, it's, it's, it's just rip the Band-Aid off. Go through it. Um, could you have done anything differently? What were your motivations? Are your feelings dangerous to yourself or others? Here's why. I mean, if you accept and allow these feelings and you take that time to process that, you can figure out if you need more help than you can with yourself. You eat. Uh, my motivations, my feelings that are dangerous to myself or others, these are bad things. I need to go to uh, get treatment or, you know, like, I, mm-hmm. and I'm a big proponent of going and getting help if you need it. You, you, you need to know whether you're, you're grappling with something that's too big for to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and accepting and allowing those feelings are how you make that discovery. Um, and then otherwise, you know, you, it, it helps you take the time to process the guilt and the grief and the fear um, and loss. And... Um, and then, you know, show yourself some compassion, you know, mm-hmm. recognize that you're doing the best you can practice and allow yourself some self care. Don't feel bad for needing time to recover or getting enough sleep and sleeping well. And I think that that's particularly the case now with this COVID stuff that's going on around us. I think all of us are exhausted and we can't pretend that everything is normal around us because it's not normal. Um, and so it's okay to slow down and take the time to recognize your feelings and, and do what you need to do. Because if you don't, you're going to not be of any help to anyone. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. not yourself or anybody else. Which comes to number five, which is be of service. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that happens sometimes is when I, when I go out and I give a speech about my experience or I do something like what I'm doing now, is uh, people will thank me, and I always feel a little uncomfortable with that because I know in my heart that what I'm doing is, is helpful to me. You know, it's, it's healing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it can provide you with a unique perspective um, when you go through a trauma that can make you a service for others, and um, that can be a key to healing. Um, one of the things that um, I... I think that sometimes we do with this aspect is we'll say, oh, well, um, you know, maybe it's God's will so that you can be of service. Um, (laughs) I don't recommend ever saying that to anybody Mm -hmm. um, because I think that is a way of pushing pushing somebody to do something that they may not be ready to do. Um, It's making them feel guilty for um, being angry about something horrible happening. You you just don't do that, you know? but in your own heart, you could say, well, I, I, I can't help what happened, but I can do something with this mm-hmm. that might make me of service to others with my own personal experience. Um, 
And also, if you work hard with people and, you know, maybe what others would call self-sacrifice, I can be set free from my own suffering and pain mm-hmm. um, and set free from the cage of self-centeredness. So um, we mentioned that before. I'm, in, I'm about to run off to go clean some uh, cat litter for rescue kitties. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, someone might say, well, that's a really nice thing to do. And I'll be like, yeah, it is. But mostly I just want to hang out with the kitties and get outside of my head for a little while. So it's not really a, an act of self-sacrifice for me to do this volunteer work. It's fun. I enjoy it. It's um, it's a pleasure for me. Um, that's sort of a small thing, but, you know, there's a lot of big things that we can do, too. So, um, and we talk about this in the, in the rooms a lot. If you find yourself caught up in self-centeredness and navel-gazing, just look around you and see if there's some chairs that need to be set straight or a table that needs to be wiped down or some coffee that needs to be made. Um, do the service that lies within your power. Um and you'll find that you'll benefit even more than the recipient of that service. Um, and that's a, a really amazing joy. Um, and then finally, of course, we talk about prayer a lot. And, you know, sometimes you can ask the universe or God or whoever your higher power is to help um, because that's all you can do. You can hold that person in the light, which is what we do in the Quaker tradition. Mm-hmm. We wish for healing. Um, you can hold big things in the light, like our whole nation and the world, and pray for a hopeful outcome. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that's all you can do, and you have to be at peace with that as well. So, you know, service can come in many, many forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's pretty much it. I, I ended this with one of my favorite quotes. It's by a, a conservationist named David Orr, and he works on um, endangered species. So you can imagine that that is... Um, in conservation, I can imagine that can be a really difficult field to be in mm-hmm. <laughs> in this world. Um, and he wrote that uh, hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It's not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Optimism cannot be commanded, but hope can be nurtured by doing good work, being open to life, and rising above our lesser selves. Hope, real hope, comes from doing the things before us that need to be done in the spirit of thankfulness and celebration without worrying about whether we will win or lose. And uh, that's the end of the quote. I love that quote because it just reminds me to let go of the outcome Mm -hmm. and focus on the work and Mm -hmm. focus on the work, doing the next right thing. And um, this is a quote I discovered many, many years ago before, um, before I became an addict and went into recovery, but um, it's something that I've been reminded of many times as I've gone through this journey, is to let go of the outcome, just do the work and see what happens, you know, be open to how it goes and don't necessarily think that you you understand, you're not in control, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and to let go of that, and that's a big part of um, going through this journey, you know. Well, so, step yeah, one, that's, right? That's what I talked about. Huh? It's step one, right? Like you're oh, powerless. Step one, yeah. So have you I found, like, have you found the 12 steps and being in a 12-step fellowship pretty in sync with how you would process and go through trauma? Yes. Has, so has your recovery Very helped much. your trauma? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that I started on a journey to where I feel truly I'm a survivor, where I have my feet under me, 
I mean, one of the things that you find when you really have your feet under you when you went through something awful is that you can talk about it with someone who you don't trust to handle it well. Mm. And there was a very many, many, many years where I could say this happened to me only to those who I knew would handle it well. Because immediately after the event, there were some people who didn't, and I lost their friendship. I just, I was so angry with them, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I I just couldn't handle, like, I couldn't handle whatever was thrown at me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's only, you know, recently that it's like, well, this is just how it is, and you'll say what you say, and, and, you know, because I know where I stand. And that's a a journey of self-discovery, and... um, and it's, it's a process, and the 12 steps certainly have helped. Um, there's no question in my mind that it has helped tremendously with um, getting my feet under me in terms of, you know, what will happen will happen. Um, and I can only speak my truth. And after I speak my truth, then whatever the outcome is, is whatever the outcome is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so people can, like, you know, say whatever they want. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's not that it won't bother me, but things will still bother me. But I, I can, I can manage it a lot better. I guess I feel like I feel like I'm on stronger footing. You won't spin sure. out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like before, I was on such such fragile footing that it wouldn't take much to get me <laughs> get me off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and put me in a spiral. You know, like, you just, it, it's a good feeling when you're like, okay. And you, 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 we say this sometimes, Julie, when someone, you know, acts like a jackass in front of you that you, you don't have, you're not, you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to, you mm-hmm. know. If someone's being a jackass, you can just say, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walk off and, uh, and you find yourself completely unperturbed. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. You know, that they no longer have that power over you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, so I think it helps me be a lot stronger. Well, you're one of the most remarkable women I've ever met. So I'm oh, so... Oh, that is feeling so mutual. <laughs> thank you. I'm so happy to have you on today. I think this is a really important message. I think we hear a lot about trauma, but we don't hear about how to walk through the experience or what it is. But I think the most important thing for me that I took away from this is radical self-compassion and non-judgment and understanding that you can have a feeling and it doesn't make you good or bad. It's just a feeling. That's how we're made up. It's a signal to us of something. And we can have that feeling and move forward and look at it for what it is and then find the helpful tools we need to heal ourselves and to walk forward. And then ultimately, at some point, see what it's like that. See how our experience can benefit others or see what came out of it, even just objectively looking from the outside in saying. And as you know, it takes at different points after the trauma, you see it different. You're going to see it different 30 days from one year, from three years, from 10 years. But knowing that there are absolutely people out there that have been through what you've been through and survived and talking to them. Mm-hmm like a shared experience as we learn in the rooms bonds you to someone like no one else. That's right. And, and you become brothers and sisters and other, other differences start to fall away and you don't 
care about them and you realize how superficial they are. Um, and there's a unity to be found in the rooms that are, is hard to emulate anywhere else. And I'll say that that's also true of other trauma survivors. You get together and there's this sort of shared compassion and experience that you have for each other that makes other differences just fall away. Yeah, it's one of the things I love most about our fellowship. Like, I think we're suffering from the disease of separation in society. Like, in the rooms, it doesn't matter sex, gender, weight, age, height, background, cultural experiences. We're all addicts, and we get it. And I feel like a lot of the political upheaval right now is people saying, well— you're not of the same kind of blank that I am, so you're not having the same experience as me. And it divides everyone into like these subgroups instead of we're human beings, we're flawed, we're in so much pain and suffering right now. Like, let's show up for each other. Let's stop saying your group is against my group. And even within the group, like, I'll speak from something I know about we'll talk about like being a member being a of the female gender like we'll break down into mm-hmm. well she's got more money than me so she doesn't understand or she's beautiful so she can't possibly have any brains in her head or this one is a mother and that one's a stepmother so we don't understand each other and it's like breaking us down into like we're not a sisterhood anymore we have this hierarchy of who can understand what and who can be there for who and it's like can we just all be human beings beings and love each other and support right. each other like stop breaking into <laughs> factions and it doesn't matter like what you know whether i understand or not completely either like yeah i may not understand your experience but i can hold space for it mm-hmm. i can listen i can learn from you and you can have the compassion for my ignorance and i can have the compassion for your experience we can have that together Mm-hmm. Um, and get each other through it too. So yeah, those separations are really quite, un, you know, quite silly. And 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 in, in a sense, it, I think that there's some probably some instinctive reasons we separate ourselves from each other. But it's very destructive, especially mm-hmm. when you're trying to get through a rough time together. So yeah, you have to make that space for each other and do the best you can. Um, yeah. And I do, I do think that it's so important not to say, well, I had this experience, so I understand, and you don't. And the truth is nobody understands. I was, I was just thinking that. Like, first of all, I will yeah. never know what it's like for Amanda to go through anything because I'm not Amanda. But I can say right. I get it, but I'll, I've stopped saying I know exactly how you feel. I just say, oh, my God, I get it because it's a different yeah. experience. And anyone that wants to show up and be there for me, like, that's a gift to me. I'll never push away, hopefully, ever again. Like, I remember going through my divorce and being single and all these married people giving me advice. And I'm like, they have no idea what it's like to be lonely and single. How could I ever make that statement? I would get mad at someone (laughs) trying to be there for me. And so I hope with my continued experience with the world around me and in recovery, that I never push away someone. I mean, I'll judge. We all judge. It happens. 
but a, it's a gift from God to have someone come and support you and want to be there for you. And instead of looking at them as they won't understand, just saying thank you. And if they make a mistake, I think this is super important too. If they make a mistake and say something stupid, to just talk to them a little bit. Like that language actually like gives me anxiety or that's – I love you, but that's actually not helpful. <laughs> like – Right. Talk to or people. Simple, hey, I need a, I need a little bit more space right now. If you could provide that for me, that would be great. You know, to be able to have the, I mean, I think it's important. Again, it's where that 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 ring theory comes in. You know, it's like, I think, I, I wish I had the ability to articulate that I was in the middle of the ring and someone was on the outside and be like, I don't really want to hear about your experience right now because I am seriously agitated and I'm just not ready to make space for that you know just to be able to articulate that would have been so helpful yeah <laughs> of course i was 18 and so all i would do is just be like Ugh. yeah in our sister group <laughs> i didn't know how to handle those things yeah. In yeah. our sister group, so, when we share things sometimes, if we're just want to share, we'll say, I don't need advice. I don't want to hear anyone's opinion. I just need to vent right now. And we all know it's not the time to like get into the program or this is a step one problem. It's just like, just listen. And we go, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. Like you said, can I bring you a cup of tea? Oh, can I pray for you? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, maybe that's why we have a no crosstalk. I mean, that's why we don't crosstalk in the rooms. Mm-hmm. Because when you crosstalk in the rooms, you rob people of their own space and their own journey to get through what they're going through. And that is not, that's not how you recover. We know that's not how you recover. You don't rob someone of their bottom. You don't rob them of the process. Mm-hmm. Help them. And you give them a space to say things like, I really want a drink today. Mm-hmm. You know, even though... You know, your natural tendency is say, no, don't do it. You just say, thank you for acknowledging, you know, your feeling. And hopefully let's let's get you, you know, what what, what do you need from us to help you get through this? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, but you don't sit around and say, well, you know, if I were you, I'd do this. That, you know, in the middle of meeting, meeting is all about holding space for each other. That's what we do. And um, so I think that's why the crosstalk thing is... Um, in place totally agree yeah i directed for each other yes Mm -hmm. i directed a family member to an online 12-step fellowship the other day and she was texting me through the process it was very cute because she didn't know the lingo you and i did a podcast on that uh three months ago i think and she was like what's o-d-a-a-t and i'm like one day at a time and Anyway, so she's asking all these questions, and then she said, well, when does the advice part start? (laughs) And I said, we don't do that. And she's like, well, when do you give, like, your opinions? I said, we don't do that. And she wanted to know what crosstalk was. And I said, the whole reason I think the rooms are so healing is because each person gets their moment to talk about something that they're struggling with in their recovery, and everyone else just witnesses what they're saying. And then they close their mouth, and the next person opens their mouth. And she was blown away by the concept that you don't interrupt. And she's like, oh, no, I was on the computer going, great, share, and that's amazing, and hang in there. I go, that's okay. 
You know, in a normal meeting, you probably wouldn't do that. Online's a whole different beast. But I said I nod a lot when people are sharing, but you don't ever interrupt them. And you don't, that's why we don't comment directly on their share. You can say something's been said tonight that I really relate to, but you would never just look at someone. I go, it's it's not therapy. It's different. It's recovery. We focus on the solution. We don't focus on the problem. But like you said, we hold space for each other so that in a room of people that have had similar experiences, we connect to each other. Right, right. And that nodding is so important. I know that sounds odd, but that connect. Uh, one of the other online groups I'm in, we don't actually, a lot of people don't turn their cameras on which I understand, like, you know, you don't necessarily want people to see your messy house or whatever. But I really like that our little group, we, you know, we look at each other and there's lots of nodding and connection that happens. And I think that's so, because uh, that, I think that's a way that you can hold space and to show identification when someone's speaking, but not interrupt their flow of thought mm-hmm. or, uh, or, or take up that space that you're holding for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end. I do too. Julie, it's always so wonderful to chat with you. I feel the same. Thanks for sharing Mm -hmm. your experience, hope. What is it called? My experience, strength, and hope. (laughs) And for always being so vulnerable (laughs) and honest and raw about what you've gone through. I know so many people are listening to this today and have gotten so much from you. So thank you for your time. It's the most precious commodity we have. And I appreciate every second I get to spend with you, whether it's on here or stupid little memes we send each other. And I hope that (laughs) kitty poop makes you very happy this afternoon. I think it might. It just might. (laughs) Don't breathe in too much of it. All right. Well, thanks, listeners, for listening to us today. If you need to reach me, you want to give me feedback about this podcast, you can email me to soberchicks at gmail.com or, as usual, and always Twitter and Instagram at two sober chicks. I love you. I appreciate you, and I'll talk to you soon.